the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. If you like a good revolt... If you like a good insurgency against the ruling class, then you're going to love the story of GameStop and uh, the Redditors who have driven GameStop's one-year stock uh, price up about 7,000%. <laughs> Short-squeezing the short-squeezers, dealing body blows to some of the biggest hedge funds on Wall Street. Uh, including Melvin Capital, which I think was the outfit that needed uh, $2.3 billion equity infusion to stay, keep the doors open because of the uh, short position they had taken on GameStop. Uh, we'll get to the details of it from an actual trader, Chris Arnotti, in just a second. But the reaction is almost as telling as the underlying story itself. It was uh, brought up at the White House press briefing yesterday to uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki, and this is her response. These people, uh, and, and in government generally, both parties, are so out of their depth, it is staggering. I give you Jen Psaki. Um, is the White House concerned about the stock market activity we're seeing around GameStop, um, and now with some other stocks as well, uh, including the subsidiary or whatever, the, the company that was uh, Blockbuster, um, and have there been any conversations with the F SEC about uh, how to proceed? Well, um, I'm also happy to repeat that we have the first female Treasury Secretary and a team that's surrounding her, and often questions about market we'll send to them. But our team is, of course, our economic team, including Secretary Yellen and others, are monitoring uh, the situation. It's a good reminder, though, that the stock market isn't the only measure of the health of our, econo of our economy. It doesn't reflect how working and middle-class families are doing. Uh, as you all know from covering this, we're in the midst of a K-shaped recovery. America's workers are struggling to make ends meet, which is why the president has introduced this urgent package to get immediate relief to families. I'm sorry, what does the gender of the Treasury Secretary have to do with the question? Number one. Number two, you, you understand a short squeeze is nothing new. It's just the source of the squeeze that is relatively novel. No, she doesn't. The opportunity to give some throwaway line while infusing identitarian politics and talking about your $2 trillion COVID relief plan. And by the way, the woman who asked the question is no more clued in than Jen Psaki or anybody. We're monitoring the situation, the Biden administration. OK, well, uh, on the street, all of the crying about this from uh, those who like it to be nice and orderly with the Wall Street Titans enjoying all the benefits and the small guy uh, just along for the ride to the extent that he is useful. 
the responses have been very interesting. This from uh, Charles Payne over at Fox Business. All of this nonsense, all of this noise, all of this whining by Wall Street, it's making me sick. 140% of GameStop was short. I didn't hear one person on TV complaining about Wall Street trying to crush GameStop. 140% short. I told my subscribers, buy this stock, and they made a fortune. I also told them to buy Virgin Space, uh, Virgin. We took profits on that today. Fizz, that's up huge. Tangers is up huge. Neil, you can't allow Wall Street to short 75% of a stock, and nobody says anything crush these companies into the dirt, and then when the individual investor makes money, everyone's up in arms. Oh, they're going to lose their shirt? Don't you think people are trading? If it traded 80 billion shares a day, people are ringing the register. I have a kid who bought a house. He had a, he made $50,000 and bought a house. So, yes, yeah, some people are going to lose and some are going to win, but if, you wanna, if they want to change the rules of the game now because the general public is making money after decades of the shorts crushing thousands of stocks into the dirt, I've watched stocks being crushed completely to zero uh, and no one ever whispered anything because those stocks didn't have Wall Street sponsorship. They were small names. Maybe they went public through a reverse takeover. Whatever it was, the shorts have had their way with the market for decades. No one's ever complained about it. So I am thrilled if you were going to try to destroy a company by shorting 140% of its stock, you have to accept the fact that individual investors are playing the same game that you're playing and now you're losing. And uh, the institutional response? NASDAQ boss Adina Friedman talking about uh, the need to uh, perhaps enhance the regulation and uh, enhance market regulations. Remarkable. Now you have the head of NASDAQ talking about more regulation of the market. When does that happen? Well, I, I do think, though, that as we look at these new technologies that are there available to everyone, including investors, I, I think it's also important for regulators to understand that you know, manipulation is manipulation, whether it's happening through a new technology medium or it's happening through traditional mail. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of making sure that we understand what the behavior is, what's underpinning the behavior and working appropriately with the regulators to to uh, to manage the situation. Oh, yeah. You got to manage uh, Wall Street bets forum over at Reddit, but, but you don't have to manage any of the monster hedge funds. Uh, one uh, analyst on uh, Kramer's Mad Money program suggested that maybe foreign powers were afoot here. This is Vlad Putin rather than a bunch of small investors at a forum by the Wall Street Bets, which, by the way, got shut down. And I think it's back up. But Discord uh, banned the, uh, the uh, Wall Street Bets server uh, company confirming to The Verge. They're saying it was because of a discriminatory, hateful and discriminatory content and warnings about that content rather than anything having to do with this. Pretty curious. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Chris Arnotti. He's a writer and photographer covering addiction and poverty in America. He's the author of the book Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. He's coined that term, Back Row America, which I like, and the, the book is excellent. But before he was a photojournalist who spanned the fruited plains to uh, document Back Row America, he was a Wall Street trader for nearly two decades. So he has a lot to say on this topic, the convergence of his uh, two professional careers, callings, if you will. Chris, thanks for uh, joining us again. So, um, you know, your give, give us, uh, since you're an experienced hand at this, what happened from your perspective and what the implications are? I mean, you know, it's the, the hedge funds got done to them what they do to everybody and they don't like it. They you know what they what they do. Hedge funds operate. 
by <clears throat> they take a bit they take a big position often it means being short a stock in this case GameStop but the, historically it's been all over the place companies they quote don't like and uh, they take a big position in it and then they go on CNBC they go on Squawk Box they go to investor conferences and they talk their position they say this company sucks it should fall apart we have a big position in it you too you should too they they announce it very loudly what they're doing they they go to Davos and they tell their friends and they go on to Bloomberg and tell their you know they they send chat messages to their friends that they should do this trade too, and then they put the trade on using very complex financial derivatives, thing, um, options calls, even more complex option things than that to get the most bang for the buck and to take advantage of the you know, their, their knowledge of, of how the market is. That's exactly what Reddit did to them just now. Reddit, a bunch of uh, <laughs> they call themselves and I'm using the term they call themselves autistic retards, <laughs> decided to go long GameStop because they saw that um, a lot of people were on Wall Street were short it, out over their skis, as it were, and didn't understand a company that they, Reddit users who are a lot of gamers, understand very well, which is games, gaming. Um, and so they went long, and they told other people to go long, and everybody went long, and... They did it through call options, through complex um, derivatives, um, this type, call options. They figured out what call options were, and they took advantage of the situation, and now GameStop <laughs> went from, I think, went from 20, and I, I'm laughing now because I think it's like 450 right now. It's up another uh, 100% <laughs> or another 100 bucks this morning. <laughs> so, look, but you have to be consistent. You can either, you know, what's good, good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're going to regulate Wall Street, then you regulate the hedge funds and tell them that the, the behavior that Red is doing is it, if, if Red is doing what hedge funds do. So why is it any different? You either regulate both or you regulate neither. But you just don't regulate. You know, it's a classic example of, you know, libertarianism for for me, authoritarianism for you. Yes. That's what they're going to end up doing. They're going to regulate Reddit, and they're going to leave the hedge funds alone. And it's going to be a classic example of picking on the low hanging fruit. You, I can do it, but you can't. So, you know, it's like you got to give Reddit credit. Now, look, I, look, if people are listening to you, I mean, my advice, if, if you want it, is if you're going to invest money in this, in the, this is crazy. This is, this is lunacy, um, but Wall Street is always lunacy. If you're going to invest money in this, make sure it's money that you can, you can lose. Think of it as entertainment. Uh, right. That's not an endorsement of speculative investing that's going on uh, regardless of where, when that's an important point to make. When we come back with Chris Arnotti, I want to stick on this topic and talk more about uh, how the rules for thee but not for me just repeats and repeats and, uh, and get Chris's reaction to uh, NASDAQ boss Adina Friedman's comments. More with Chris Arnotti right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're speaking with photojournalist and former wall street trader chris arnotti about the game stop stock and um, the uh, reddit revolt if you will uh, and I want to talk about the uh, treatment of the same behavior, depending on who's engaged in it, 
varies and how this just continues repeating itself. I mean, I, I go back to the uh, 2008, 2009 Great Recession, and we bail out AIG to bail out Goldman Sachs, but Main Street doesn't get bailed out. And so now we and so here's the same thing. Uh, we have to rush in to protect billionaires operating yeah, the biggest I mean, hedge funds in, in the world because a bunch of you know this plucky band of Redditors uh, gave them a taste of their own medicine. Yeah, I mean, just be consistent here. You know, either either, either hedge funds are allowed to do it um, and, and, and everybody's allowed to do it or nobody's allowed to do it. Which one? Like, you know, don't don't immediately say the game is you can't play this game when it's when it's the, when it's the Reddit crowd, when it's the mob, when it's just the, the kid sitting in his basement who's 23 year old who works at Best Buy who's doing it. You know, you should applaud him. If you're applauding the hedge funds to do it, applaud him for doing it, too. Just be consistent, you know, and that's the problem here is they're not being consistent. And, you know, watching CNBC this morning, even already watching these people be very seriously you know, tutting what Reddit is doing as if they don't, I mean, this, is, this is, CNBC is a platform for, for hedge fund people to do this, to go on and yes. talk their book. It's their Reddit, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's <laughs> just like they don't want competition, I guess. The hypocrisy here is just mind-boggling. And, it's, and you know, unfortunately, it's not surprising. I've become very cynical. Like anytime, anytime anybody who isn't credentialed, who doesn't have a big resume, who, who doesn't have a blue check mark, who doesn't have the, uh, you know, the, 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 right, the right friends. Anytime they, they win, they get slapped down. And that's what's happening here. Uh, the uh, comments by Adina Friedman, it's one thing for the, uh, the, the hedge fund uh, operators to, uh, you know, be uh, comfortable with their own hypocrisy because their bottom line is at stake. It's another thing for the head of NASDAQ to come in and not make the point that you're making. Um, and so that just tells everybody who didn't already know that uh, the hierarchy of these uh, trading platforms, these trading, these exchanges is beholden to uh, the same people that don't want any part of you. Yeah, you know, and you, you had a quote on from the beginning about Yellen. I happen to like Yellen as a, as a you know, relative to, to within the world, world of Treasury secretaries. I, I, I don't have a lot to hold against Yellen. I think she was OK at the Fed. But. Yellen also, remember, got, I think, $50,000 for giving speeches to Wall Street per hour. Mm -hmm. the, reason, the, reason, the reason Wall Street and hedge funds pay someone like Yellen to give them $50,000 you know, $50, to speak for them for an hour is to gain the sheen of credibility, to gain respectability, to say what I'm doing is credible because I – look, I, I'm so credible I can have Yellen here, the Treasury Secretary. I'm, 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 she's a speaker at our conference. Therefore, what we're doing is okay. So – that's what's frustrating here is the crap that hedge funds do is, is it's not different than what the crap the crap that the, the Reddit the Wall Street bets crowd is doing. It's just it's just gotten quote respectability because of who the people are and how much and who they paid off, and it's just, it's as simple as that. And that's what's so frustrating is to see you know everybody all these serious people going tut tut over Reddit Wall Street bets when in fact their whole their whole that's how they made their money and that's how their friends make their money and that's how the people who pay them make their money. So it's, you know, again, hypocrisy is just, you know, again, authoritarian, libertarianism for me, authoritarianism for you. One set of rules for me, another set of rules for you. What's that line from a Chinatown? Uh, at a certain age, uh, buildings, politicians and prostitutes get respectability. If you last long enough, you get uh, you can you can yeah, gain I mean, respectability. And that's sort of what the, the the industry that we recognize has done. And then any sort of insurgency like this, Redditors, what's this forum and so on and so forth, that that's that's somebody incurring onto what we understand is legitimate. So they're illegitimate. 
Yeah, and, and you you have to go. I encourage your listeners to go to go read Wall Street Bets because I mean they're they're having fun. You know, at the core of this is it's sure they're up seven thousand percent. Yeah, right. It, but it's also it's not just about it's not just about the money for no, them. It's about the fact that they're 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 basically shooting a bird. You know, they're they're having fun. I I look. I sadly think I'm cynical enough to have watched enough enough lived enough life to know that unfortunately the powerful almost always win. <laughs> and I think this will ultimately result in, in Wall Street just gain, gaining more power. Um, eventually when, when the dust settles and the crash comes, um, this will be a transfer of money from big firms to other big firms. And there will be more regulation on what retail, what, what basically any, the normie, normies can do. And it'll be a further rigging of the system. So I'm pretty cynical. I mean, I'm enjoying watching this at some level, but also I think it's just I'm somewhat fatalistic. I have to have to say, and uh, and I just worry that this is going to end badly. Let, let Let me ask you just a, a more general question beyond this. Um, you know, there's only it seems to me that the one of the lessons of human history is there's only so much you can take away from people before you. Um, generate a response and not always a pleasant one or not always a, a, a nonviolent one. And um, as you've covered back row America combined with incidents like this and what you suggest will probably happen to this uh, plucky band of Redditors, you know, where, where do you see this going in terms of where we're at in America now, uh, the oligarchs versus sort of everybody else? You know, I'm still friends with some of those oligarchs from my old banking. You know, sure. I, it's fascinating. I have friends on both sides of this trade. Um, you know, I, I have a wide range of friendship. I, I, I don't cut friendships off based on people's politics. I, I'm friends with everybody. Um, and I tell those friends, those oligarchs, you guys got to change. If you don't change, um, change is going to be forced on you and it's not going to be pretty. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I am... I'm at the age where, uh, you know, maybe not in my lifetime things will dramatically change, but it's certainly going to be in my children's lifetime. I think you you just you can't continue on this path of a system that's so rigged and not have there be um, kind of basically big 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 and ugly results. You know, you can you can either try to 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 um, change your ways, or people will force you to change your ways. Um, and you, the former is always much better than the latter. You don't want <laughs> you don't want extremism to rise to a point where people just are so tired of it that they basically embrace the rebel, embrace the stupidity, embrace the craziness. And that's what Reddit's doing. They're having fun embracing the. You know, they're called again. You, you think I'm you think I'm one of my favorite posts on the Reddit Wall Street bets was. You know, that famous quote that economists love to say, what, you know, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. <laughs> uh, and the number one upvoted thing on Reddit for a while was, I can stay retarded longer than you can stay solvent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're, they're just enjoying this, right? And, and that's, that's fun for a while, but at the same time, is you, you'd rather, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> you'd rather that the, 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 the credentialed class, the, the oligarchs, better step aside or better change their ways or better change their it's going to be forced on them and it's going to be forced on them in ways you know you can see more and more um more and more volatility not just in stock markets but in person life you can see more and more people embracing conspiracy theories you can see more and more just people embracing the the kind of punk attitude of i don't really care what you think i you know and ultimately that's what reddit thing is about is i don't care what you call value i don't care what you think the value of company is i'm going to do what i want to do and you know 
that's where we're going to go. More and more people are doing that. He is Chris Arnotti, writer and photographer covering addiction and poverty in America, author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, and uh, as we were discussing, uh, a former Wall Street trader for nearly two decades. Chris, thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, just one more point uh, flying off of our conversation with Chris Arnotti before the break. Like the politician who styles himself a Robin Hood, the trading app turns out to be the converse of its marketing. GameStop stock removed from the Robin Hood trading app today. So just as Arnotti predicted, the uh, closing of ranks that is occurring. Speaking of the uh, reverse Robin Hoods, the uh, human toll of New York's restaurant unemployment crisis. Uh, This over at uh, Grub Street. Unemployment in New York City's hospitality industry peaked in April at 71%. And even since restaurants were allowed to reopen off and on over the course of the next eight months, the uh, unemployment rate was exponentially higher than the general unemployment rate for the hospitality industry nationally and certainly as compared to other sectors. After December's indoor dining shutdown, uh, the number shot back up from under 40 percent to 43 and a half percent. New York City restaurant workers, the unemployment rate today is uh, four times higher than the city's overall rate. And the national restaurant industry unemployment rate is at 16 percent, so two and a half times less. In total, the estimate is there have been approximately 140,000 fewer jobs in New York's restaurants, bars and other businesses defined defined as food and drinking places. And uh, this is consistent with the two track jobs recovery. Jen Psaki uh, talked about the K-shaped recovery, right, but it's government-induced, policy-induced. It's not pandemic-induced. It's response-induced. Wall Street Journal reporting, employment increased in 15 states in December, including Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, South Carolina. Light touches when it came to lockdown policies. The gains, though, in those 15 states were more than offset by the losses in Michigan, California, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, New York, lockdown states. New York minus 37,000 jobs in December. California minus 52,000 jobs. Oh, and by the way, just as a related story, St. Andrew of COVID-19, our General Dwight D. Eisenhower of the pandemic, report out today that COVID deaths in New York nursing homes were 50% higher than initially claimed by Andrew Cuomo State Health Department. This from the Democrat Attorney General of New York State a report that was issued today. So for those policies and this devastation, you got what exactly? And now we want to scale the governance model of California nationally. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Joel Kotkin. He is the Urban Futures Fellow at Chapman University, Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute, and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. I don't know if it's still a coming or if it's a came, uh, Joel and Co- Joel Kotkin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. So uh, what about that? You wrote in City Journal, you know, making America California that we're essentially taking this. Uh, the left is taking this model and trying to scale it nationally. And uh, the jobs numbers in California, minus 52,000. The population continues to shrink. Employment continues to shrink. The congressional delegation is going to shrink after this next census. 
it's uh, just a remarkable uh, doubling down on failure. Well, and of course, the reason that I discussed this, why California is able to project it, I mean, I don't think, you know, you'd have to be almost insane, even if you were ideologically uh, so uh, inclined to, to look at de Blasio as a as a model, or even New York State, or certainly Illinois. I mean, you just, you'd just be insane. I mean, people just laugh at you. California is a little different. Um, it's certainly, um, the lockdown policies have been tough. Um, the environmental regulations, the taxes, the, you know, big companies are leaving, small companies are leaving, all those negatives. The thing that makes it possible to maintain the fantasy is the fact that we have these gigantic tech companies that are making phenomenal amounts of money that are earning lots of capital gains for people, and we have the IPOs. Now, the problem is you can, you can sort of sustain at least temporarily uh, California – fiscally because of this. Other states don't have that. So let's say you go and you decide that you're going to wipe out the energy industry in Texas. Well, there's no Silicon Valley to make up for it. There, you know, there are some wealthy people, but not anything at the level that, that you have in California. So you know, fundamentally, it's a model that is flawed to start with, but is, a, but is flawed um, for other states even more so. So you know, essentially what you're seeing is an attempt I would say by the metropolitan elites in you know New York, Chicago, uh, San Francisco, L.A., to sort of impose their worldview and their economy on the rest of the country, and it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Well, that's yeah, and you're right. It's sort of sort of a microcosm of this two tracks. Uh, just looking at the states, uh, the comparative state jobs numbers in December, you see a two track recovery. So things are going very well for those uh, t- tech. Businesses in California and, uh, you know, in all the pockets in between those tech companies, perhaps not so well. Uh, When we come back, I want to continue to explore that and um, sort of the implications of uh, modeling California and and the oligarchs' views nationally. More with Joel Kotkin. He is the Urban Futures Fellow at Chapman University, the author of The Coming of Neo Feudalism A Warning to the Global Middle Class. We'll be right back. Listen, the more you'll know, this is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Joel Kotkin. He is the Urban Futures Fellow at Chapman University, executive director of the Urban Reform Institute, and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. And, uh, you know, you and uh, Professor Michael Lynn down at the University of Texas have sort of a very similar description of what's happening in America. Um, And uh, he recently wrote about uh, the uh, American elite, the oligarchs that you were describing before the break. And he talked about how, one of the things that's changed today as compared to the elites of a bygone era is that they're not regional anymore. You don't have moneyed interests competing that are uh, sort of regionally centered and compete for uh, supremacy region by region. You have um, a national oligarchy, national elite class that is uniform in its um, credentials, dialect, religion, political positions, and it's imposing uh, the, an orthodoxy that is national. So, it, you know, the, the 
oligarchs in Silicon Valley are indistinguishable from the uh, the, the, the the oligarchs in in, in insurance or in and finance in Chicago, in New York, and so forth. And that creates a, a much different dynamic, frankly, a more stifling environment. Is 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 that uh, your sense of it as well? Yeah, I think definitely um, what you're going to see is this. I, I would go a little further than Mike goes because Mike's book is you know focused on the U.S. I I'm, I'm focused globally. Mm-hmm. I think it, we're seeing a the emergence of a global um, aristocracy and and clarity. You know the the sort of the the, the, the very, very wealthy, they, they have more in common with each other, whatever country they're in, than, than they have with the vast majority of the, of the population. Uh, many of these companies um, are, are certainly global, um, and they, have, they rely on, on the same system, and they're beginning to adopt a similar ideology, this great reset, which uh, the Davos people are pushing, right. um, is really saying, let's take the lockdowns and make that sort of the model for dealing with climate change. I mean, that really is where we're headed. We're headed to a world where the, the elites, in order to maintain their position, uh, will continue to uh, uh, you know, push policies that will make it harder for new players to come in. I mean, do you think Facebook and Google want competition? Really? Um, I mean, look at Microsoft, you know, creating mediocre software for 25 years. But if you've got a monopoly, you don't have to uh, pay attention. As I always say, you know, when I ask my techie when there's some breakdown in the Microsoft system, he says, well, you know, what's your alternative? You can't go anywhere else. And that's sort of the world that we're beginning to see. And we're seeing it on a global level that um, there are sort of two different um, sort of corporate economies and, and ideologies. One is the the sort of American, Western, you know, European, uh, sort of that worldview, and then there's the Chinese. And uh, they're really, and they're not necessarily, uh, the people who are at the tops are actually not all that hostile to the China model. I mean, in many ways, we are beginning yeah. to move towards something that looks like China. The biggest difference is in America, the the capitalists control the <laughs> control things, and in China, the Communist Party controls. Things. Well, but it's 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 uh, exchanging comfort for freedom. It's that's the same dynamic, and so the, it seems to me that the oligarchs' trick here is to make sure that you provide enough comfort to enough people uh, that they're that they willingly give up their freedom, that they don't mind if their kids don't get to go to school, uh, they don't mind if uh, their real purchasing power is uh, diminished if their economic opportunities are reduced because they're being conferred through transfer payments and government programs or, or uh, benefits, unearned benefits, and or you, you continue to expand government at every level, so you provide sinecures for a, a percentage of those people as well. That's really been the kleptocratic model in places like Illinois, which I know well. <laughs> well, you know, and, and of course this is one of the reasons why Many of the tech oligarchs, they like the universal basic income because basically they get to keep their money. And you ask the diminishing middle class to pay for universal basic income so people really have no motivation to work or start businesses. I mean, that's certainly one one aspect. And then I think the oligarchs and, and their allies have, have, have made a very cynical bargain where they said, you know what, and this is... Unfortunately, um, I'm actually more of a social democrat and like to see 
more economic uh, uh, impetus for the middle and working classes. But that's not where Biden's going. Where Biden's going, it, it, at least as of now, is he, he's going to, like the corporations, placate people on gender, race, mm-hmm. environment. Those, because those are things that they don't they don't affect the profits of Google. <laughs> you know, I mean. Um, and and so what you do is you you, you play the progressive game uh, on these sort of identity issues um, as long as you don't ask the tough questions. Which you know, as much as I don't necessarily agree with uh, you know what Bernie Sanders says, but I think Bernie is making the direct comment that you can't have a, a, a you know how do you have any kind of social democracy when. A small group of people control an enormous percentage of the economy, and I would argue, scare to me, the scariest part is they now control the means of information, complete domination of the universities, pretty much domination of all but a few parts of the media. And you know, I think Dan, you're probably uh, uh, you're going to have to be deprogrammed. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, deprogrammed or deplatformed, one of the two. No, one of the I two mean, D's. We, yeah. I mean, we live with this. Fear now that, and I think what we've seen is, and look, I was not a Trump supporter. I didn't vote for him. I think, you know, I really think he was a bit of a lunatic, and you know, for lots of reasons. So I, I'm not defending Trump, mm-hmm. but he was the, the in many ways, the only thing uh, preventing preventing the oligarchs from taking complete power. And I think that's what's going to go on now. Who's going to restrain them? Who's going to say no? He is Joel Kotkin, Urban Futures Fellow at Chapman University, Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute, and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Joel Kotkin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Ah, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Welcome back to the show. Uh, just building off our conversation with Joel Kotkin. I think you're going to start saying more of this. You know, it's not going to be kitschy. Thinking about uh, pitting people against one another and conferring benefits, imposing responsibilities, or preventing opportunities. It's a uh, dangerous business that uh, these authoritarians, whether they're in public office or C-suites, are engaged in. Uh, I mentioned that a cigar shop that I frequent in suburban Chicago a few weeks ago made national news after it was covered locally by CBS affiliate in Chicago, posting a sign saying Biden voters keep out. A friend of mine who owns the shop. And he meant it. And, uh, of course, it's been really a boon to his cigar shop because uh, this just in, you know, a lot of these left uh, leftist folks and the women that were in in the community in which the cigar shop is located uh, who were complaining about it. Not exactly your core patrons of the cigar shop. Okay, And uh, so I expect it's the same with this uh, gun shop in Missouri. But, um, you know, don't think this is necessarily going to be limited, particularly if you start to have uh, small business owner operators uh, collaborate 
to support one another specifically and create silos of businesses that are owned and operated by Trump supporters versus um, those that are owned and operated by Biden supporters. I suspect particularly with sort of your National Federation of Independent Business Types, it's going to be overwhelmingly Trump supporters. But nonetheless, Missouri, uh, my local gun shop announced last night they do not have any guns or ammunition available for Biden supporters. Uh, this is uh, was checked. The uh, it uh, checks out trigger firearms and reloading LLC based in Missouri's capital, Jefferson City, posted on its Facebook business page. We don't have guns or ammo for Biden supporters. Sorry for the inconvenience. You know, gotten thousands of interactions and shares, as you would uh, suspect. They have did not provide uh, any comments to a Newsweek, which called the company to uh, request comment. Um, but um you know, it, what's the comment? What do I need to say? It's pretty straightforward. And, you know, all of this, like, well, how do they know who's a Biden supporter? Again, probably not a business that's going to suffer as a result of getting national attention. It's almost a clarion call for Trump supporters to support the business just on principle. That's what happened with the cigar shop. But is that really what we want, whether it's social media platforms or businesses in your local community or schools do you really want to self-segregate by race, gender identity, political persuasion, and not even necessarily political persuasion, but who you voted for in a particular election? You know, do you want people coming into your store like I've seen happen in my friend's cigar store saying, oh, you know, I'm a I was going to buy your most expensive cigar, but I'm a Biden voter trying to precipitate conflict. Uh, you know, this is not going well. This pitting people against one another based on you know group rights and group responsibilities and group opportunities. Uh, this is not promotion of wanting it to break bad, as we were discussing with Joel Kotkin. It's a description of how that is not a sustainable paradigm for a free society. It is going to break bad, whether you want it to or not. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Remember when uh, issuing executive orders was the hallmark of a dictator? Yeah, that's what uh, one uh, former vice president, now president, had to say before he was president. The one thing that I, ha I have this strange notion, we are a democracy. Some of my Republican friends and some of my Democratic friends even occasionally say, well, if you can't get the votes by executive order, you're going to do something. Things you can't do by executive order unless you're a dictator. We're a democracy. We need consensus. Uh-huh. Uh, well, so on the executive orders that have been issued, discussed yesterday, this time in the area of the climate apocalypse, the impact on energy policy, and thus the impact on energy independence, as well as the cost of doing business, the cost of living in America, all of these things. John Kerry, Biden's climate change czar, took to the uh, dais yesterday to address the press. He said something uh, rather interesting. He also knows that Paris alone is not enough. Uh, not when almost 90 percent 
of all of the planet's emissions, global emissions, come from outside of U.S. borders. We could go to zero tomorrow, and the problem isn't solved. Uh, we could go to zero tomorrow, and it wouldn't matter, because the existential crisis has to be with us in perpetuity. It is the pathway to growing our power and shrinking the individual citizen. Uh, the new reset that we talked about earlier in the week, re-engineering capitalism so that it is focused on collaboration rather than competition, mm -hmm. driving investment towards environmental initiatives such as those defined by politicians, statists, world government types like the Davos crowd, like uh, the Biden administration crowd. It wouldn't matter if we got to zero carbon emissions tomorrow. Wouldn't matter. Because 90 percent of the world is not on board. Right. It sounds like something that um, people like me have been saying. And actually environmentalists like Michael Schellenberger over at Forbes and uh, the uh, gentleman I'm na whose name I'm blanking over at the Copenhagen Consensus Center, uh, Lumberg, Bjorn Lumberg. Sounds like something that uh, sensible people talking about in, uh, environmental stewardship and energy policy have been saying for a long time. We know what's happening. We talked about this yesterday with Steve Moore. Uh, on the one hand, you have all of this uh, desire to uh, reach, imagine and transform the American economy to discard our energy independence, which was hard fought and hard won. And all the while, China and India and Germany are building coal-fired power plants. So this is uh, the Biden administration saying, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to reorient our national security policy, uh, the State Department, the Department of Defense. We got this uh, you know, guy we're giving a term of Russian royalty over here named John Kerry. And we're going to focus our efforts of diplomacy, or at least this will be a part of all of our diplomatic efforts, to go green we're used to this. It was Joe Biden who said to West Virginia coal miners, they should learn to code. Jennifer Granholm was before the Senate for her confirmation hearing as Secretary of Energy, former governor of Michigan, where she was in abject catastrophe. You know, some jobs are going to have to be sacrificed. Of, uh, of President Biden. Did you encourage him to issue the ban then? I didn't have a specific conversation with him about it myself. You know, a long-term ban on oil gas leasing is going to cost about 62,000 uh, jobs in New Mexico. And we have the senator from New Mexico here, about 33,000 jobs in Wyoming, 18,000 jobs in Colorado. A long-term ban is going to cut revenues to New Mexico and Wyoming by hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, which these states uh, use for K-2 public education, other essential services. I'm just curious how a long-term ban consistent with the president's goal of unifying our country and putting Americans back to work and helping our economies uh, grow, uh, how is that all consistent? I think the president's plan of building back better which would create more jobs in energy, clean energy, uh, than the jobs that might be sacrificed. But I will say this, no job, we don't want to see any jobs sacrificed. And that's why this, when you opened up your remarks, sir, your, um, your remarks about technology were so important. This is why um, reducing GHG emissions is so important on, in the fossil fuel arena. The, the moratorium on 
public lands. I know for those states that have these jobs in abundance, this is something we're going to have to work on together. That was John Barrasso, a Republican senator from Wyoming, questioning Granholm. So, so uh, the follow-up question, we, we don't want to sacrifice any jobs after she said some jobs are going to have to be sacrificed. Okay, well then, uh, where are those uh, jobs that he just described? Where are those people going to go work? Uh, how about just a real-world example? You just killed eleven to 15,000 jobs on the Keystone XL pipeline. So you don't want to sacrifice those jobs. You don't want to sacrifice uh, the employment for those individuals. So where are they going to work, like right now, as they're getting laid off? What do you have for them? You got some, uh, you and Terry McAuliffe going to set up some sort of Solyndra, you know, green energy venture capital fund at Department of Energy again? We going to do that or what are we going to do, Jennifer? Jennifer Granholm is really uh, just a, you know, political hack par excellence. And she spent most of the last several years as a pundit on places like MSNBC. She was treated uh, with uh, kick gloves over at Meet the Press from time to time. But she's just a ill-informed political hack, like so many of them. Here is Jennifer Granholm in a flashback, 2016, October of 2016, before the 2016 election, where she was flacking for Hillary Clinton, talking about taxes. Look, Donald Trump is making the point that no American pays more in taxes than they want to. And, and that is true. Uh, what do you make of his argument, the Clinton campaign? Obviously, you guys are trying to spin this up and keep this going in the news cycle. At some point, is there a valid point there that, look, most Americans don't want to pay more than they have to? I, I totally get that. But here's the thing is that Donald Trump's the guy who's been tweeting about half of America doesn't pay their taxes when there's a big deficit. Not every American looks for every loophole under every rock. And the, the question is for everyday citizens in Ohio, in Michigan. So who is paying for Donald Trump's Secret Service right now? Mm. It's not him. It's you. Who is paying for the airports that his jet lands at or the streets that he rolls on or the police officers that are securing Trump Tower? Who's paying for that? He's not paying for that. We are paying for that. Yeah, misdirection play on taxes and sort of the old you build it go to argument. Uh, and here's what uh, the collective group is doing with the help of Pagliacci Schumer, the uh, Senate majority leader now, uh, turning over the keys to Joe Biden and the executive branch to behave the same way governors have behaved in so many states during the covid crisis. What do we have? And I know a lot of people saw this coming, but now it's here. So let's talk about it. We have a public health emergency. We have a climate crisis and uh, as David Harsani writes, Chuck Schumer saying it, it may be a good idea for the president to call a climate emergency. That's what he said. In other words, the leader of what is allegedly the world's greatest deliberative lawmaking body, tasked with, among other things, checking the power of the executive branch, is advocating that his ideological ally bypass Congress, declare a perpetual emergency that affects the entire economy and rule by fiat. Tell me again about um, norms in our co-equal branches of government. That were so much the topic of conversation during Trump. Remember, in the rule by fiat, perpetual emergency. Perpetual emergency is the key. And John Kerry just gave you the tell. If we eliminated all of our carbon emissions tomorrow, it wouldn't make a difference. We'd be in the same place because until we get all of these countries like China, India, which, by the way, under Paris, the Paris uh, climate change accord nonsense. China and India aren't required to do anything 
with respect to their emissions until 2030. This is all the predicate for what they're backdooring you with, which is just rule by fiat. We're going to do what we want. We have to marginalize the opposition party. We can't work with the opposition party. We're certainly not going to compromise with the opposition party. So we're just going to come over the top. Everything's an emergency. We consolidate power with our ideological allies the way you've seen governors do, essentially suspend the legislatures. And when you have legislatures that are ideological allies, as you do in Illinois, for example, eh, there wasn't a peep. No problem. Let Pritzker take the reins. Let him do it all. We have not just a one branch of government in Illinois. We just have one person government in Illinois. Well, that's the same thing they want to do at the federal level. COVID is going to go away at some point. So let's begin to prepare people for our transition into emergency 2.0 climate crisis climate apocalypse grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. One of the uh, benefits from the left of running around uh, looking for violent extremists and uh, using that moniker to describe anybody with whom you disagree, talking about white nationalists and white supremacists as the existential threat to the republic, as has been the case from uh, Susan Rice and others over the last several days, the first week of the Biden administration, is that you don't have to address uh, the Antifa rioting that continues on America's streets, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, but not limited to the Pacific Northwest. You don't have to address Black Lives Matter, the uh, intrinsic nature of that Marxist organization and uh, what uh, they may have planned for the Biden years. For more on the topics not being addressed, Pleased to be joined by Jake Wallace Simons, award-winning British journalist, novelist, and deputy editor for the Jewish Chronicle. Jake, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So with respect to Black Lives Matter and uh, Antifa, that le- that perhaps is less focused on this particular uh, pathology than Black Lives Matter, uh, and we've seen this play out uh, in the context of COVID policy in places like New York City as well, the anti-Semitism that uh, punctuates some of these uh, leftist organizations uh, that's, uh, you know, frankly, consistent with uh, Marxists of a bygone era. Uh, and, um, you know, that truth that has to be confronted or, or should be confronted, even if there's a desire to paper over it by some. That's right. I mean, I think that the Black Lives Matter movement has a very uncomfortable relationship with Jews. And we've seen that all over the world, actually, not just in the United States, since the killing of of George Floyd caused the whole thing to really explode. Uh, We've seen Jewish shops being destroyed by the rioters. We've seen synagogues sprayed with free Palestine graffiti. Uh, We even saw a statue of a Swedish diplomat who had saved Hungarian Jews from the Nazis being defaced with anti-Semitic slogans. And in France, there was a a Black Lives Matter rally that descended into cries of dirty Jews, Mm. which brought to mind the Dreyfus affair a century ago. 
And so, you know, Black Lives Matter activists, not all of them, but, but some of them, a significant uh, portion of them, do have a problem with Jews. And to me, that is sad and worrying and troubling. But also, if you reverse through history and look at the figures of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, it's quite clear who their historical forebears were. And, and it wasn't Martin Luther King with his nonviolence policy and his inclusive attitude and his defense of Jews in many different contexts. It was definitely Malcolm X whose biography contains a lot of anti-Semitism. Uh, and I think he is taken as the sort of example for modern-day Black Lives Matter um, activists. And the whole thing, of course, is accelerated by this magnifying presence of social media, uh, which has caused everything to become more and more frenzied. And I think that today, nobody would argue to be racist. Everybody argues against racism. But I think the question faces up, that faces us today, the most urgent question, is whether we take the Martin Luther King approach of conciliation and, um, and peace and looking beyond the differences of the colors of our skin to the content of our character, or whether we take the more militant and divisive approach that has grown from the tradition of Malcolm X, which is exemplified on the streets of the United States today uh, in the Black Lives Matter uh, rioters. Yeah, and you uh, make a point, make this point in a piece I read from you uh, in The Spectator, uh, that King stood up for persecuted peoples everywhere, including uh, Jews who were being persecuted behind the Iron Curtain some half a century ago. Um, whereas here now today and with groups like Black Lives Matter, it seemed there seems to be sort of a persecution political pecking order. You know, um, if we're being persecuted, then then we can't have other people who are also being persecuted to whom we're rallying. Uh, we're, we're rallying with because, you know, the persecution is a power, real or perceived, is a claim to certain benefits or a certain political power, and we don't want to share it. Yeah, it's a sort of this weird phenomenon, modern phenomenon of, of competing for victimhood. You know, it feels like that's really on, on the, on the uh, liberal left and certainly the further you go to the left. Uh, there is this sense that you've got to find the persecuted group to be part of, whether it's a sexual minority or a racial minority or, or some kind of combination of the, of the two or what, what they call intersectionality, that there is a competition for victimhood because there's a sense that that gives your voice a legitimacy and a weight because the nature of identity politics is that if you don't have victimhood, you're kind of barred and you're not taken seriously because you haven't got lived experience, as it were. And so I think they're, they're into a bit of a tangle, an ideological tangle when it comes to competing narratives of victimhood. And Jews are seen in a very complicated way by the radical left at the moment because are they black? Are they white? Are they privileged? Are they oppressed? Um, you know, which side of, of this argument are they on? And of course, Jews as a whole, is, is not, they're not a monolithic entity. There are many different types and shades and right. persuasions of Jew. And so I think it challenges the ident identitarian politics narrative on a number of different levels at once. Uh, it's interesting that... Um, a solution to that complexity uh, where the radical left is concerned has tended to be lump Jews in with the white oppressor and hate them, um, well, which is sort of in the, in the Malcolm X uh, mold. Yeah, and, and something else, too, that you see, we saw play out, as I mentioned before, with COVID policy I sort of alluded to, is uh, the radical left and their influence on otherwise, you know, quote-unquote mainstream politicians and the way or the Orthodox Jewish community was treated by de Blasio and, to a lesser extent, Cuomo in New York with respect to COVID lockdown policies when they would defy them for a, a, a service at a synagogue or a funeral service, the, the nature of that community being so tight-knit. And, and the threats... Uh, from from public officials to say, if you don't 
uh, abide this stricture, then I'll shut down your synagogue permanently. I mean, an American politician talking about shutting down a place of worship is a big jump. But the Orthodox community within the Jewish community seems to be the easiest target for politicians to take up because, you know, any Orthodox religious community is uh, an easy target for the radical left. That's right. And I think that the interesting thing about the Orthodox community in the United States is that although they look very different from mainstream Americans, uh, you know, superficially, actually uh, beneath that, they are more like mainstream Americans, certainly the centre-right, than other more liberal Jews, uh, in that Orthodox Jews have similar um, principles of, of, of family. They're quite conservative in their, in their social beliefs and in their, in their political outlook. And certainly they tend to vote Republican. And this makes them also a big challenge to the liberal left, um, who have a problem with Jews anyway, as I've, as I've described in general. Uh, and the Orthodox are uh, challenging on a number of different levels. And look, you know, demographically in the States, uh, the, 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 the Jews who are on the sort of weakest, most liberal end of the spectrum, perhaps the ones that we see populating the higher echelons of the Biden administration at the moment, actually, right. um, are beginning to assimilate and to drift away and to evaporate into the non-Jewish mainstream. And what this means is that the proportion of Orthodox of the Jewish community in the States is becoming larger because the rest are fading away. And so in a way, over the next few years, we're going to see a Jewish population in the States that is more Orthodox and also more Republican. And I think that this represents a big, uh, a big shift in American politics. Um, and when that's coupled with the Biden administration, that actually people do question his affinity uh, for Israel and the, and the, the amount of uh, the amount the, the extent to which he looks out for Israel's interests, you, you end up with a quite a troubling dynamic that seeks, seeks to um, sort of disrupt the age-old relationship between the Democrats and the Jews. He is Jake Wallace-Simons, award-winning British journalist, novelist, and deputy editor for the Jewish Chronicle. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We return to our conversation about big tech, but not uh, as it relates to Reddit and Wall Street uh, as it relates to social media platforms, current and past for now, like Parler. Uh, interesting piece by uh, Tomas Philipson in the Wall Street Journal suggesting that for all the talk about Section 230, for all the talk about uh, treating big tech platforms as common carriers, as we've discussed with Richard Epstein on this program, or as public places of accommodation, another idea that's been kicked around, that uh, actually uh, what uh, Twitter uh, well, I should say what Apple and Google and Amazon did to Parler is not to eliminate competition, but actually to promote it. It seems counterintuitive, but that's the argument that Thomas Phillipson makes. So let's explore that with him. In addition to bringing in some of these other contextual issues that uh, I referenced, uh, we'll please be joined now by Thomas Phillipson, who's the Daniel Levin Professor of Public Policy Studies at the University of Chicago. He served on the White House Council of Economic Advisors as a member and acting chairman from 2017 to 2020. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. So um, 
what Amazon, Google, and Apple did to Parler is to uh, give them a gift, to do something for them that they couldn't have done for themselves uh, but would have wanted to, uh, you argue. What is that? Yeah, so if you look at any company, the value of any company is sort of the future earnings, the present value, I would say, of future earnings. So in essence, what big tech did to Parler was provide an investment, which is usually to you know undertake an uh, upfront cost for a larger gain in future earnings. So what I argue essentially is that uh, the servers going down through Amazon uh, is basically a short-run problem that uh, – parlors in the sort of uh, uh, in the few weeks ahead will be fixing. But the long run gain from this whole episode has been an enormous international, I would say, marketing campaign or ad campaign that has a much larger gain in the future. And to replace a month of foregone earnings is very easy by a few percentage point growth in the future of the number of users. And that seems very likely given how users at Parler have grown to previous um, uh, incidents. For example, they grew about 500% in active users around the Hunter Biden suppression by Twitter. And they jumped to number one uh, on the Apple download, on, on the uh, Apple Store downloads, uh, App Store, uh, when POTUS got kicked off of uh, uh, Twitter. So this is, a, you know, this is a campaign that would, would have cost Parler way more than a month of foregone earnings to implement if they were self-financing this marketing campaign. And it wouldn't even be feasible to get on, you know, the constant news coverage at any price for any campaign. So I think that this has now made Parler sort of go from a, an obscure small company to a household name or from a company to a, to a cause, really. And I think that wouldn't be feasible without these actions by big tech. Well, uh, two things. One is uh, it's a household name so long as it actually has a, a product. Um, and, and so you're you're discussing this is a bit of a technical issue specific to Parler. But but let's explore it, because um, uh, those that I talk to in this industry who understand this a lot better than I do wonder they don't know, but wonder just exactly how Parler was coded. So how difficult it will be to uh, disentangle itself from Amazon Web Services and find another uh, hosting service. And, and how long that might take, because obviously uh, you lose brand equity the longer you're not in business. And then secondarily, when it even if it were to come back in a relatively short period of time, if it doesn't have access to Google Store and Apple's App Store, then how much of a of a of a, of a blow is that to, you know, its continued growth as a business? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Parler's public statements have said that it's just a matter of weeks before they're they're actually negotiating with multiple other companies that can provide service. And I've actually interviewed Parler management about this, and they're saying they're also very optimistic. So I'm, I'm going under the assumption that this is not a long-term uh, shutdown, which it doesn't seem to be. Regarding the apps, there's, you know, uh, plenty of uh, websites that do are very profitable and thrive without apps. Uh, you know, the main, sure. uh, the main traffic, if you like it or not, you know, no ethical comments or whatever, but it's pornography on the web. And most of those don't have app. And there, there's a huge demand for those websites, even though they don't have apps. So it's certainly, it's certainly feasible, just as a factual matter, to thrive without apps on the Internet. Uh, when we come back with uh, Professor Phillipson, I want to uh, explore some of the uh, proposals that are still being bandied about to regulate big tech and, 
if he thinks, as he sort of indicates with respect to what's happened to Parler and what he anticipates for Parler, that the, those regulatory gambits would do more harm than good in advance of a competitive environment and in, in advance of a free marketplace. More with University of Chicago professor, former White House Council of Economic Advisors member and acting chairman Tomas Philipson right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor Tomas Philipson, University of Chicago, where he's the Daniel Levin Professor of Public Policy Studies. He also served on the White House Council of Economic Advisors as a member and acting chairman between 2017 and 2020. Before the break, we were talking about Parler, but I wanted to take up uh, something that's uh, related to all of these uh, big tech companies, uh, the the social media platforms at least, and that's the proposal by uh, many, mainly conservatives like Josh Howley of Missouri, to uh, get rid of Section 230 protections for big tech companies that would treat them as publishers and thus uh, remove the indemnification for the content on their sites. Uh, Interestingly, one of the alternatives that's proposed by those same conservatives in terms of looking for other platforms to uh, perform the same function that uh, Twitter uh, does, for example, is MeWe. And the CEO of MeWe, a gentleman named Mark Weinstein, argued in the Wall Street Journal, small sites need Section 230 to complete. He He writes... Um, I'm, a, I'm the CEO of, of uh, MeWe, a social network that competes directly with Facebook. We have millions of members, people of all political persuasion. Revoking Section 230 would significantly harm smaller companies like mine and new startups that compete with the tech giants. Those who want to get rid of 230 say this would stop social networks and websites from unfairly censoring their users' political comments. In reality, it would give them an incentive to censor far more aggressively. To protect themselves from being sued over content, they would remove anything Even remotely controversial, users would be spied on constantly. Ironically, this would help Facebook, Twitter, and Google, and other social media giants while hurting smaller companies and new startups because the big boys have deep pockets. This is actually some of the argument that uh, uh, Cornell University law professor William Jacobson, who also operates the LegalInsurrection.com blog, made with regard to Section 230. Section 230, a bit of a blunt instrument that could have unintended consequences that actually inhibit competition. So... Uh, Professor Philipson, uh, you know, ironically, the big boys may have helped Parler by deplatforming it, and conservatives may hurt uh, sites like Parler by uh, pursuing Section 230, a uh, removal of Section 230 protections. Yeah, I think there's a couple of issues here. I think uh, the MeWe CEO is correct in that regulations, you know, liabilities, et cetera, often hits. Uh, uh, large and small firms differentially and makes it provides an entry barrier for smaller firms to compete. I think he's correct in that. The second issue is, I think, is that I am very nervous about sort of taking a approach that we should regulate these companies as utility monopolies. Uh, there's a couple of reservations I have. One is you know, if you just follow the money, you know, antitrust lawmakers in the, in, the, in Congress are financed by the incumbents here. And that makes me very nervous that they will be rewriting this as opposed to 
you know, uh, some sort of fair type of legislation. Also, the executive branch is staffed many by many of the alumni of these yeah. companies. And, and, and Facebook and Amazon are, you know, the large, two largest lobbying firms in town in D.C. in spending. It just came out that, those data. So I think that and makes a, a, you very agency agency capture issue is what you're raising. Yeah, exactly. That makes you very, very nervous that the laws will be rewritten by the incumbent firms as opposed to to stimulate uh, competition. And we certainly have examples of that uh, from the past. In addition, I think regulators are always too slow to keep up with an industry, particularly a fast-moving industry like technology. And, you know, the exhibit one for that is the 1990 Microsoft case, which was kind of redundant once it was settled out or or decided. And and I think, you know, the the focus should be uh, by those who, you know, really want to provide sort of a change in this market should be how do we stimulate competition the best possible way, not how do we regulate this as a as a sort of a utility monopoly. I guess, you know, the, the um, one one um, uh, pushback to those who are suggesting you know, government intervention here, and this is I'm talking about conservatives largely, is a, a bit of patience. I know that's um, that's difficult to, to garner, but you have Gab, you have MeWe, you have a site actually that Tyler Cohn from George Mason University, econ professor there, was talking about on his blog called Clubhouse which uh, he seems to be pretty high on in terms of uh, a platform for actual discussion and debate. Uh, and, and so and, and, and you, were, you were talking about what, how Parler could come back bigger and stronger than ever if it can uh, find a, a host in the near term. And so, you know, maybe let the market breathe a little bit. And if the uh, big boys are going to engage in this suppressive activity, they're going to unintentionally make the environment more competitive and you know perhaps there will be a there's sort of reckoning in the marketplace that's more effective and uh, uh more uh, even-handed than would be by the policymakers that some conservatives are leaning on right now yeah i think that the issue here which is which is true and economists have recognized that for several decades now is that once you have a social media platform you need the social for the customer to be valuable what that means is that a big size of the company, i.e. a monopoly, is valuable in itself. So people don't want to leave Twitter because they have a ton of followers on Twitter, right? So that's basically the size of the company itself is valuable. That's not true if you buy a you know, a soap or a car or whatever. You don't really care how many other people buy that soap or car. But here you do for these kind of companies, you do. So that makes competition more difficult because even though my, many can argue and some certainly believe that the intrinsic product of Parler is better. If they, if consumers don't want their data sold, if they want free speech, if they don't want shadow banning and fact checking, the intrinsic product of Parler is better, holding the size of the of the uh, of the followers on the site constant. But no, this, the, that's not constant. So it makes it harder to compete with Twitter, even though it's an intrinsically poorer product. And that is the issue with getting momentum on a social media site. But I think that's exactly the momentum kick that big tech has given Parler here. You know, Parler could never have gotten this momentum on its own. He is Tomas Philipson, the Daniel Levin Professor of Public Policy Studies at the University of Chicago. 
He also served on the White House Council of Economic Advisors as a member and acting chairman from 2017 to 2020. Professor Phillipson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. Take me home. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show and um, this uh, video that has gone uh, viral of a father in Loudoun County, Virginia, addressing the school board. And uh, as you're listening to him, as I was, the question arose in my head, where have dads been standing up for their families and their kids, whether it's against teachers union apparatchiks or these educrats on school boards, local politicians, where you can actually have an impact? Here's uh, his address to his local school board. You should all be fired from your day jobs because if your employers knew that you were more inefficient than the the DMV, you would be replaced in a heartbeat. I literally just finished a conference call because I'm having to multitask to be here to, to address you guys. You're a bunch of cowards hiding behind our children as an excuse for keeping schools closed. You think you're some sort of martyrs because of the decisions you're making when the statistics do not lie that the vast majority of the population is not at risk from this virus. The garbage workers who pick up my freaking trash risk their lives every day more than anyone in this school system. Figure it out or get off the podium because you know what? There are people like me and a line of other people out there who will gladly take your seat and figure it out. It's not a high bar. Raise the freaking bar. I'm going to give staff an opportunity to make sure that um, the podium and microphone have been... Just please wipe it down ahead of time, please, because we don't want anything to protect us. Sir, your time is finished. Can you please leave the boardroom? It's okay. Don't worry Thank you. I'll be back next time. In the next time. I'll be back the next time and the time after that until you open the freaking schools. Uh, The response, though, from those imperious educrats. uh, Would someone please uh, wipe the microphone to make sure that the just glossed right over the sum and substance of what that uh, father had to say and the basis from which it came? Again, I know people are afraid. They're afraid there'll be retribution visited upon their sons and daughters in school. They'll be afraid they'll be marginalized, especially in this era where if you raise your voice in opposition to the established orthodoxy, you could be labeled a violent extremist, a purveyor of hate speech. But um, at the local level, this is where reasonable people, parents, stake in the game, can organize and pressure through the political process, pressure their local representatives to do the things that make sense rather than lord over, unreasonably lord over their families. It's such an opportunity. I guess the question for dads out there specifically I'm pointing to is, yeah, I know there could be retribution for you. There could be retribution for your kid, even if you organize, you have uh, strength in numbers. But I mean, what do you teach your kids that um, you don't have to stand up for something that's correct if it's if there's a potential cost that uh, we're going to um, choose to 
live on our knees rather than die standing up. I mean, not metaphorically, you know, die in terms of losing a particular fight, not die, die. What do, what do you teach your kids? And then so what's the example you want to provide in this moment when so much is at stake? Their education, their mental well-being, their socialization. Where are the dads? This is Dan Prosser. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Can you feel the acrimony dissipating? Can you feel the love tonight? AOC, the front girl for the socialist Spice Girls, she on uh, CNBC with Rachel Maddow, lookalike Chris Hayes, had this to say about uh, the House Republican Caucus in 2021 and its uh, leader, Kevin McCarthy. There are legitimate white supremacist sympathizers that sit at the heart and at the core of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. When you see someone like the like the, the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy of the Republican Party, uh, respond to white supremacist vitriol coming from his own members, not with censure like they did with um, Representative Steve King of Iowa, um, not with, you know, being stripped of committees, not with any consequence. You have to wonder where, who actually has that power. And it increasingly seems, unfortunately, that in the House Republican caucus, Kevin McCarthy answers to these QAnon members of Congress, not the other way around. You know, uh, Biden and AOC are doing their best to promote unity. But how can you unify with people who are white supremacist sympathizers and QAnon flax? You know, like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. For more on uh, this new era of unity, pleased to be joined again by Gerard Baker. He is editor-at-large, Wall Street Journal. Gerard, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You uh, must understand AOC's dilemma when it comes to uh, her commitment otherwise to unity. Yes, of course. I mean, she is the very embodiment of unity. And in fact, in a funny way, she actually represents the kind of unity that Joe Biden seems to be trying to impose on on, on the country, which basically says this, look, agree with everything I believe in, and then we can have a unified country. If you don't agree with everything I believe in, I'm afraid you're a destructive force and you need to be expelled from the party, expelled from Congress, expelled from polite conversation. It's a, you know, it's the kind of unity that is imposed by a victor in a war when the other side unconditionally surrenders. That's not really the way that democracy is supposed to work. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward, though. You, you have to admit there's nothing confusing about it. And you see moves that uh, help to bring it into focus to the extent there is any confusion or lack of clarity. For example, tasking the director of national intelligence and uh, Susan Rice spoke to this uh, the other day as well to uh, identify and ferret out elements of violent extremists uh, with particular focus on white supremacists. It seems to me that the Biden administration is going to operate very much like uh, the social media platforms that are in the squelching dissent business at present, which is to say there's somebody or some group we don't like. All we have to do is tag their positions as hate speech, identify them as violent extremists, and there's nothing we can't do to silence them. 
Yeah, exactly. That's the danger here. Look, no one condones political violence. No one condones white supremacists. There are white supremacists. There's no doubt about it in this country. They are around. We saw some of those people who uh, who rioted on Capitol Hill a few weeks ago. Nobody supports that. And of course, you know, the, the government should take all measures to ensure that, that those people are not a threat to other people and to the stability of the country. But but actually, look, we were told, of course, on Inauguration Day that the country was going to be overrun by these white supremacists in 50 state capitals and in Washington, D.C. I saw one lonely protester, I think, outside the Michigan state capital in, in Ann Arbor. And I think that was all we saw. And where is the political violence since Inauguration Day? Where actually has the political violence in this country been coming from? It's been coming from the far left Antifa crowd on the West Coast in Portland and, and, and elsewhere, for whom uh, apparently Joe Biden is not is not radical enough. They're the ones. So look, yeah, exactly as you say that for the likes of AOC, and unfortunately, it does seem for this administration, the opportunity here is to portray the opposition to everything they do as being led by and being distinguished by white supremacists and therefore unacceptable people outside the political mainstream committed to political violence. Therefore, they must be crushed. Well, you didn't see any white supremacists at the state capitals on Inauguration Day because they're all members of the House Republican Caucus, uh, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, but here's what here's what they're doing. I mean, this is just an extension of uh, what they did the last four years, what they've done for the last 50 years. It's just boogeyman politics. Boogeyman Trump is gone. So now it's boogeyman white supremacists. Yeah, yeah they exist. They're an excess central threat to our republic, please. So it's boogeyman white supremacists. We don't need to make compelling arguments for our policies. We just have to say, look at who's opposing us. That's all you need to know. That's the same play they made with Trump. Don't pay attention to the details of his policies. Just look at uh, who is proposing those policies. That's all you need to know. That's right. Exactly. It's the demonization of political opposition. This is, you know, it's, it's an old tactic. It's particularly favored by the left. It's been, you know, a tactic of the left going back to the French Revolution, that, that if you oppose this, you are a threat, or, you know, whether you don't like what the administration is doing. And, and, and the point I'm making in my column this week is, you know, Joe Biden's supposed call for unity is represented by the actual material reflection of that is this attempt to get the country to unite around what is a very, very radical agenda? It's, it's tremendously ironic. Joe Biden won in, in large part the election because he wasn't Donald Trump. He won the Democratic nomination because he wasn't a radical. He's actually in his first week is, is, is through these executive orders and presidential declarations and others is, is implementing a very, very, very radical agenda on everything from racial equity to um, eliminating uh, fossil fuel to, to energy jobs. Uh, to promoting um, the uh, you know, very controversial uh, opportunities for transgendered people. This is the, the woke left-wing progressive agenda that Joe Biden actually rejected in much of the Democratic primary. And he's now, uh, it, through, through, through executive fiat, imposing it, imposing it on the country. It, it's, a, it's not the way to unify the country. He won the election, sure, and the Democrats won control of the House and the Senate. But they are acting as though they have a mandate to implement the most radical policies. And it's no wonder that people want to get up and protest. And I think I got my state capital wrong earlier. Of course, it was the one pro single protester was in Michigan, was in Lansing, Michigan. But, it, you know, it, you know, this this is why people this is you know, if he wants to unify the country. This seems to me to be a very strange way to go about it. It seems like the failure uh, of uh, the Republican Party, center right, commonsensical people is um, that. The failure to make arguments. So uh, with respect to this phony baloney call for unity, it seems to me you have to do two things. And Rand Paul 
began to do those two things uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, he's, I think he's the only one working in Washington, both with respect to his uh, resolution on uh, the impeachment trial, as well as his questioning of uh, Tony Blinken in the Secretary of State confirmation hearing, which was excellent. But uh, is one, so unity is, is their new speak for uniformity. That's number one. Okay, we've, we've set that. The other thing is, that's not the question. You're not going to, quote unquote, unify, like bring everybody into agreement in a country of 330 million people with a history of being nonconformists. That's a good thing. So it's about setting standards. What, what are, what's the basis on which we organize a free society? And here the question is not unity or not unity. It's do you believe and do you want to live in a society that believes in peaceful pluralism, peaceful pluralism, peaceful, substantive disagreement, Go your own way and respect people who go their own way too. peaceful pluralism is the standard, not this phony baloney uh, contrived uh, 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 misappropriation of the word unity. Uh, But you have to make that argument and you have to make it consistently and you have to present people with an alternative understanding about what a free society looks like. Completely. And what's the most effective way of ensuring peaceful pluralism, which I completely agree with you? It's federalism. It's actually ensuring that you maintain this. this you know, it's no accident that the founders um, you know, created the country uh, as it is. Uh, they created a federal system. And the importance of state power and of devolving as much power as possible to the state is absolutely the one guaranteed way of ensuring the kind of pluralism that you're talking about. And of course, what are the Democrats completely opposed to? They're completely opposed to this federalism. They want, you know, what what they're doing by trying to impose rules across the country is basically, is is, is essentially eliminating the core uh, elements and the core philosophy of of federalism. Take, for example, the filibuster, you know, they want to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. That will turn, you know, because for obvious reasons, they want to, they want to get through a lot of their measures, which they wouldn't get through the filibuster. The filibuster is an important protection of the people's rights in this country. And it is rooted in the idea that, again, this is a this is a combination. This is a confederation of states that came together, that came together and they all and they have states rights. If you introduce uh, if you if you if you eliminate the filibuster, if you if you get everything through on a on a on a national federal level by a majority vote, you are absolutely not only um, you know, cutting away that peaceful pluralism, you're creating real trouble, I think, for the future. And, and that is, you know, that's going to be one of the primary challenges, I think, facing the country in the next few years, which is how to preserve the rights of people who don't go along with the majority of what the people in the country voted for. How do you protect those rights? That's, that's been a fundamental, fundamental challenge for democracy for centuries. The United States has done it better than any other country over the last 240 years, in large part because of the system that's been, that, that was created when it was founded. Uh, if they do away with that, which they're trying to do, then you really do run the risk of tremendous domestic civil strife. He is Gerard Baker, editor-at-large, Wall Street Journal. Check out his uh, latest column, which he was uh, just referencing. America, it's time for unity, in quotes, or else. Gerard Baker, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Jump around. Jump around. Jump around. Jump up, jump up and get down. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Adoption is a loving option. Uh, Certainly something um, I believe as somebody who was adopted. 
But that doesn't mean that there haven't always been problems with the way that we approach adoption in this country, that there haven't been problems with adoption agencies, there haven't been problems with our foster homes around the country. Certainly there have been. This is in part the subject of a new book by Gabrielle Glaser entitled American Baby, A Mother, a Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption. She uh, particularly focuses in on the so-called baby scoop era, the adoption world between 1950 and 1975. Uh, in which I would be included. Barely, but I would be. Not a young man anymore. Uh, The book, American Baby, released this week. Please be joined by Gabrielle Glazer. Gabrielle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The uh, baby scoop era and what went wrong. Um, You uh, delineate errors of omission and perhaps some sins of commission. Give us the top line of what you think some of the problems were that may inform how we uh, think about adoption going forward. Well, in the baby scoop era, about 3.5 million women were forcibly coerced into surrendering their children into an adoptive system that was secretive, separated birth parents from their sons and daughters, essentially forever. And while adoption can be, obviously, as you said, a, a wonderful thing, this closed, secretive system. Well, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but when you say forcibly coerced, uh, uh, expound on that. Women in many states, if you can believe this, it was a crime to have premarital sex. And society didn't allow these women to keep their children. It was before single motherhood was accepted. So they were forced, first of all, by their parents, by their religious communities, mostly also by the state in many places, um, including the one I write about, this woman, young woman named Margaret Earle. It was a crime to have premarital sex in New York State until 1971. While Margaret very, very much wanted to keep her baby, she was not allowed to. She had to surrender her, her parental rights under the threat of going to juvie. You uh, suggest also that adoption agencies not only failed to consider, in some instances, failed to consider the emotional impact on women, and who were shamed, hidden away, but also on uh, the adoptees who were brought up to think their biological parents hadn't wanted them. So again, I'm from that baby scoop era, and it wasn't the adoption agency that uh, talked to me about being adopted. It was my parents, and my parents explaining to me that, no, it wasn't that your birth parents didn't want you. It's that they just couldn't take care of you, and they wanted you to be in a home where you could be taken care of. And so it was a loving thing that they did. I don't know how that's visited necessarily on the adoption agency. This is a, an adoptive parent, uh, parent's responsibility. Oh, yes, I agree with you. But adoption agencies also told prospective adoptive parents this young girl did not want this child. So it made the whole transaction of becoming an adoptive parent a little easier, I think. Imagine if you're an adoptive parent and the real truth of the story is, oh, we had to get this baby away from this girl who was kicking and screaming. It was much easier. There were lies told to I everybody. See. Yeah, I see. On all, the, the agencies would say, oh, this is a young girl who, uh, in Margaret's case, they positioned her as a budding scientist who was, you know, made it sound like she was on her way to medical school, was, quote unquote, ambivalent about the adoption. And that just wasn't true. She did everything she could in her power to keep custody of her son. So that's what I mean by the agencies. I see that. Okay. Yeah, they told lies in both directions. They told Margaret that she was, her son was about to go to a diplomat and was going to be adopted immediately. In fact, he wasn't legally adopted for two more years and languished in foster care for 11 months. You know, as I said, they told the adoptive family that 
she was on her way to medical school. And, and so this has obviously changed considerably in the last five decades, and perhaps most notably is the move towards open adoptions, which now is the sort of dominant form of adoption uh, where both sides know who the birth parents are and the adoptive parents are, and so does the adoptive child. Yes, absolutely. And that shifted quite dramatically starting in the late 1970s, as, as you said. And, and so um, has that uh, addressed in substantial form some of the uh, failings of the uh, era that you focus on? Yes, I believe it has. But for the adoptee, often there is a sense of when you hear that wonderful story, and, and it sounds as if your parents were extremely evolved to say your parents couldn't take care of you. We are, and it was a loving thing for them to do. That's a very different narrative than hearing, well, your parents didn't want you, but we did. We chose you. So it sounds as if the language you heard growing up was really healing in its own way. Well, and some, sometimes men- throughout the years they didn't want me. But, uh, yeah, for the most part, <laughs> yeah, we can always send you back. Yeah, right. Well, I think for many adoptees, there is that fear that even though what they hear is often warm and and loving, and there's often the ongoing question, well, it's lovely that you chose me, but why did my mother not choose me? So there's a sense, sense of a deep sense of rejection. That's a trauma to grow inside the belly of one woman and wind up in the family of another's. Yeah, it's it's interesting, though. I don't disagree with that. But the, the, the flip side is to say, I mean, I think adoption is something that should be promoted, not obviously coerced, because some people are not in a position to care for the child. And there's so many families uh, where you can have a better outcome for the child. And, and we want to be child focused when we're thinking about children. Uh, it's sort of self-evident, but it doesn't always seem like it is. And so, yes, this is uh, perhaps um, not as ideal as every child being brought into this world in a loving, stable family situation. But I mean, on balance, that's the outcome you want for every child. And sometimes it's going to be in an adoptive situation as opposed to a biological situation. Oh, no question. I completely agree with you. If a parent is unable or unwilling to raise her child, his or her child, of course, adoption should be an option. As you said, the openness with which we now conduct adoptions is a far cry from the secretive lies that were promulgated in the 1950s and 60s. You know, it's interesting, too. I mean, cause I, people ask me about this when they find out I'm adopted. Well, do you know who your birth parents are? And I say no. And and, it, and the open adoption thing is fine by me. People choose their own course and they want to, to meet their uh, birth parents. That's that's all well and good. I have no opposition to open adoptions or anything like that. But but it's just, you know, it's also you, you have to be, consider the, the other perspective, too, which is my perspective to say, you know, uh, I was adopted when I was three days old. My parents are the people who sacrificed for me and raised me. And that's just so uh, sort of how I look at it. There's no trauma there. It was a good situation. I was fortunate. And so I just leave it there. You know, I mean, if I find out my birth father was Warren Buffett, I may be a little upset because I would like that inheritance. But otherwise, you know, I just I, I, it's not that I don't care. I appreciate what my birth parents did or my birth mom did. I don't really know the situation, but uh, it's not something I think about, obsess about, uh, worry about. I just say, you know, as I said, my parents are the people who raised me from three days old to present. It sounds like you grew up in a loving home and you're very, very fortunate to have had that happen, to have been adopted at the age of three days. Many of these children in the baby scoop era were kicking around in foster care, yeah. being observed. They were the uh, subjects of really sinister 
pseudoscientific experiments that the U.S. government paid for. They were specifically kept from, some were kept for, you know, one year, two years, so they could be observed and experimented upon. And that's another big finding of, of American Baby, that we don't really want to think about that. We don't want to think about 10-minute-old babies being subjects of pain experiments, but they were. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel Glazer, journalist, New York Times bestselling author of American Baby, A Mother, a Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption, which released this week. Gabriel Glazer, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. I appreciate your having me. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, with the internationalists back in charge of uh, policymaking, national security and foreign policymaking, uh, I thought, uh, as uh, we discussed uh, in some detail yesterday, Rand Paul's exchange with uh, now confirmed Secretary of State Tony Blinken was particularly important. I know there's a lot of other things to cover, but uh, this is uh, important as President Trump's principled realism presented a paradigm shift from the last 30 years of foreign policy, more in the direction of Rand Paul's non-interventionism than consistent with the regime building in particular that Rand Paul zeroed in on that had gone on in the past couple of administrations. And just this exchange with Blinken again from uh, earlier in the week where Paul was critical of the regime building we attempted in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, in in, in Syria, in Syria, there were those who were advocating for uh, a repeat of uh, of Iraq, which is to say a whole-scale intervention. That's something that I did not agree with when we were looking at um, what but, to do but, in but Afghanistan. But here's the problem in Syria. It's, it, it is, there was a predictable result there. Had you gotten rid of Assad, mm. who were the fiercest fighters over there? Mm. Al-Nusra and Al-Qaeda. Mm. The, most ra- the more radical you were, the better fighters you were. The program that you started with Hillary Clinton, the program to train these the moderate rebels, mm. we spent $250 million. We trained about 60 we sent 10 of them into battle, and they were captured in the first 10 minutes. Mm. It was a complete disaster. This whole idea that there were moderates over there that we were going to support, doctors and lawyers and stuff, there were, but I don't think they were out there fighting. The ones out there fighting were jihadists, al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, and if they would had taken over the country, I, I, Assad's a mm. terrible person, but I'm not positive that these people would have been better. So it means the same lesson. Our humility has to be... Let's quit toppling regimes over there. Let's don't support the bad ones, but let's don't presume enough that if we topple them, that in the vacuum, Thomas Jefferson is going to arise because it never seems to happen. And Paul also mentioned the catastrophe that was and is now Libya after Gaddafi was dispatched with. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Colin Duick. He is a professor in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and author of Age of Iron on conservative nationalism, if that's a phrase that's uh, even allowed these days. Uh, Professor Duick, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So when uh, Rand Paul's uh, rather elegant in its simplicity formula of let's not support the bad regimes, but uh, let's also recognize that uh, we shouldn't be in the, the business of regime change when it comes to bad regimes. Is that consistent with uh, conservative nationalism? 
So I think when you go back to American founding, I mean, that's, that's where I trace it. I suggest that American founders, there was a declaration of independence, not of dependence. So they're looking to establish an independent country with some freedom of action in foreign affairs. And of course, they hope that popular self-government will spread, but they don't assume that they can do that for the most part by force. So, you know, there have been a lot of deviations from that over the years. And I don't think that the Libyan intervention, for example, or, or the 2003 Iraq intervention were realistic. I actually think uh, Senator Paul had a point on that. If you could, from your perspective, describe the transition from Obama-Biden to Trump's principled realism back to Obama-Biden, as it were. Starting with Obama, I mean, you have an approach that is sort of verbally liberal internationalist, but at the same time often unwilling to back it up, which was something characteristic of that president. You had, for example, a kind of light-footed approach to a lot of problems, a lot of challenges, a lot of threats. Libya is actually a good example. And of course, the Syria policy of the Obama administration was a disaster. You've got people who were part of that who now are just cycling back in. So I think that President Trump, I mean, there was a lot of heated discussion when he first ran for office about, was he right about this or that? And I, I took part in that as well. But I have to say, you know, he, he had a point, which was we've been through decades, actually, of over-optimism with regard to some of these challenges and frustrations overseas. So I think the Trump doctrine, in a way, is what I argue in the book, was to try to tone down the, the transformationalism of the liberal approach and just say, look, we're going to, in the Middle East, for example, we're going to back our allies you know, Israel and so on. We're going to oppose our enemies, whether it's ISIS or Iran. We're going to try to ramp up the pressure for negotiations, again, on Iran, and then and then hope we can uh, get something constructed out of it. Now what you're seeing, it's interesting, it's only a week old, but of course the criticism of Trump from that team has been withering, although in a way it's kind of the revenge of the Obamanots. I mean, a lot of the people are, are, are quite literally the same people. They often say the right things. If you notice uh, Tony Blinken in, the, in his hearing, actually said very tactfully on multiple points that he thought that the Trump administration got it right up to a certain point. Right. He, list, he made a list of things where he said that. But what will they actually do? I mean, what's, what's it going to look like? I mean, you know, it's, it's, a lot of it just seems to be verbiage, kind of left liberal verbiage, and we'll have to see what they really do. Uh, when we come back, I want to pick up on some of the verbiage uh, emanating from the Biden administration and also uh, fold in the uh, disposition with respect to China from the internationalist set. More with Professor Colin Dueck. He is a professor of policy and government at George Mason University and author of Age of Iron Our Conserv- on Conservative Nationalism. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor Colin Duick. He is a professor in the Shar School of Public Policy and Government at George Mason University, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the book Age of Iron on Conservative Nationalism. And uh, Professor Duick, before the break, we're talking about pronouncements from uh, Biden administration officials, uh, Tony Blinken agreeing with Rand Paul on this or that, saying the Trump administration actually got it right on this or that, much like Others, uh, Fareed Zakaria, uh, after the election, saying, you know, uh, we have to admit that actually Trump was pretty tough on Russia after four years of he's uh, Putin's Manchurian candidate. Um, one of the other pronouncements we got yesterday was uh, John Kerry, the uh, uh, climate change czar, said, uh, per Biden's executive order, is that 
all of the national security and intelligence agencies, uh, diplomatic institutions are going to be reoriented towards including climate change policy as part of their uh, mission scope and and uh, interactions with foreign uh, governments, whether they're friends or or not friends. Um, how, how does that uh, inform how uh, entangled the Biden administration may get into the affairs of other countries? Look, I think I think that for liberals, progressives, whatever you want to call it, climate change in a way for them is actually the number one international security challenge. It's not China. Uh, it's certainly not uh, ISIS or anything like that. It's climate change. So they're willing to make trade-offs. I, I think there's actually a real risk, for example, that this, this new administration could be willing to, to make, you know, serious concessions to China on important issues in order to get really pro- hollow promises from Beijing on climate change. And, and by the way, I mean, John Kerry, you're talking about somebody who isn't going to stay in his bailiwick. I mean, he's going to range freely across a lot of issues. Uh, you know, he's been put in a position where he, he could really be a major player. He could have an impact. I, this is not somebody who has a stellar record on foreign policy. You have to ask yourself. Well, neither does the president. Well, I mean, he, you know, Kerry, if he's the solution, what, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah, well, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I take your point. But, I mean, in terms of, you know, what did um... – not tenant to the other CIA, Gates. What did Gates say about uh, Joe Biden? Uh, you wrong in every major foreign policy decision of the last 30 years, and, and so is the rest of this team, it seems. Well, that's exactly what Gates said, and Gates is a pretty solid, you know, respect, widely respected character. So you have, you know, you have a team. I think Biden, in a way, has a feel for You have to say he has a pretty good feel for the center of gravity in the Democratic Party, which mm. has moved left. And as it's moved left, he has moved left. Just look at the last week. It's just a checklist of one thing after another, you know, of foreign policy as well as domestic. So that's that's what he's doing. You know, most of it by executive order, actually. But we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll see legislation rolled out as well. With respect to China, uh, let me uh, query you on this. You know, back in the Cold War, particularly during the Reagan era, there were a lot of people, uh, the liberal international set, um if they weren't rooting for the Soviet Union to win the Cold War, they were certainly arguing that the Soviet Union would win the Cold War, that uh, they had uh, essentially the superior model, that uh, they were going to be able to uh, outlast uh, America and uh, uh, Reagan's uh, dangerous defense buildup. And, you know, sort of this sort of conceding defeat. And so we need to make nice with our new, um, well, uh, overlords, maybe, or certainly it was going to be a um, a bipolar world with the two hegemons uh, for as far as the eye could see. So, so sort of leading with the understanding that we're on the losing side. Do you see this administration and some of these same internationalists taking the same posture with respect to China? Because, I mean, even on their issue, you said is their defining issue when it comes to national security because they're saying it. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, China has no responsibilities with respect to emissions reductions under the Paris Accords until 2030. So what is even the point of this? Right. I mean, so so Democrats, second half of the Cold War, really, a lot of Democrats just kind of sat that one out. I mean, with the exception of Southern Democrats, who tended to be tougher uh, in the 70s and 80s, but they've long since disappeared. Um, yeah, where's so the Sam Nunn of a 21st century Democrat Socialist Party? It doesn't exist. 
Right. No, it's exactly. It's, it's gone. So now you have, uh, you know, for liberals, the number one concern is actually probably domestic. I mean, it's the Republican Party combined with, uh, you know, combined with climate change. So I think you're going to see you're seeing a very smooth operation in the sense that it's 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 got the appearance of sometimes saying the right things on China. But whether or not this actually amounts to much is really going to be the test. Like, I have been encouraged the last few years by how Republicans have come to grips with China as what I would say is really the number one international security challenge for the U.S. And and President, you know, former President Trump actually does deserve some credit for that. He, you know, whatever criticisms there are that are fair on the specifics, he did draw attention to that. And I think Republicans, for the most part, have come on board. Whether the Biden administration dismantles some of that pressure uh, is a serious problem. I, I don't see that the Biden team believes that we are in, you know, such a fundamental struggle as, as we actually are. Or is it that, um, you know, as I said, they're sort of willing to make nice. They're willing to share the stage. They're willing to to say, well, you know, look, uh, last year uh, China surpassed the United States in, uh, in most foreign direct investment. You got uh, our friends in the NBA and entertainment that want access to the Chinese market. Big tech companies have been in bed with the Chicoms. So, uh, you know, let's make nice with them. And uh, we can coexist. And meanwhile, the Chinese communists are obviously expansionist in disposition. And uh, they'll, they will take that appeasement uh, the same way that, um, boy, the Soviet Union would take an appeasement or other predatory nations would take appeasement from the West. I agree. I mean, look, uh, if you have a school of thought that says China's already, you know, it's arrived, nothing you can do about it. Best thing is to accommodate it. You know, that's that's a, that's the point of view that is dominant uh, in, you know, pr- actually a pretty wide set of circles. I, I think there's a real risk that that's where we, we're headed in the next four years. Um, and, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party, for its part, looks to make the world safe for itself. I mean, it's it, it clearly expands its influence economically, politically, militarily. And even inside the United States, you have you have influence operations, Chinese communist misinformation. Um, you know, espionage, this is a longstanding problem. It's, it's got to be taken very seriously. He is Professor Colin Duick, professor in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the book Age of Iron on Conservative Nationalism. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. And as we uh, close out today, you know, everybody wants to get into the Newspeak game. And uh, you shouldn't be surprised that um, one of the organizations calling for a rejection of supremacist language are the lunatics at PETA. (laughs) Supremacist language. This isn't white supremacist or black supremacist. This isn't racially based. This is uh, 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 taxonomy based. (laughs) PETA posting this. Remember, these are the people 
who have billboards that compare orca whales at SeaWorld to slaves. Compare um, uh, a plate of chicken, uh, term it, a holocaust on your plate. That's how unhinged and ridiculous these people are. But frankly, they're center cut with the New Orwellians, aren't they? The tweet, words can create a more inclusive world or perpetuate oppression. Calling someone an animal as an insult reinforces the myth that humans are superior to other animals and justified in violating them. Stand up for justice by rejecting supremacist language. How do I do that, Dan, you ask? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, PETA has a handy-dandy chart to get you started. Using animals as insults perpetuates speciesism. And you don't want to be accused of being a speciesist. That'll have you out the door next. Instead of chicken, say coward. Instead of rat, snitch. Instead of snake, jerk. That governor of Illinois is not a pig. He's just repulsive. Instead of sloth, lazy. Why do you have to bring animals into these criticisms of cowards, snitches, jerks, the repulsive and the lazy? Hmm. Related story. Why meat eaters feel shamed into giving it up. Uh, Yeah. Research conducted by Jack Link's Beef Jerky found that half of the 2,000 adult participants in the survey felt pressured to either cut down or even refrain from consuming meat entirely. Another siloing that's going to happen here, uh, vegans versus the meat eaters. Uh, vegan wary. Vegan wary. Plant pushing customs like vegan wary where you go vegan for the month of January. I'm doing the opposite. I'm only eating meat in January, no vegetables. And uh, lots of chicken. Uh, this was interesting too. The same study revealed 60% of those who reduced their meat consumption did so to appease their vegan partners. Meanwhile, seven in 10 claimed they wouldn't have even considered this lifestyle change without prodding from their partners. Well, I would, uh, say to the six and 10 and the seven and 10, rather than changing your consumption habits, perhaps you should change your partner. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please continue to stay informed so you can be rational, live courageously, and we can have a free society. Join us again to close out the week tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.